And as I was prepping the sermon this week and really struggling with this text because it's not one of those ones that jumps out at you as preach me. There wasn't an obvious outline. Sometimes you hit those passages in Scripture where you, uh, let's be honest, you say, I'm not sure why this is in here. And then you remember, shame on me, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for rebuke, correction, encouragement, and training in righteousness. So we have to work a little harder and say, Lord, what do you want me to learn from this verse? What do you want me to learn from this verse, this section? And really helping my son with uh, getting ready for the VBS drama helped me realize that there's this grand drama going on There's this cosmic drama, this battle between good and evil. There's things going on in the unseen world and things going on in the seen world. And most humanity is wandering around completely oblivious. Because why? They're caught up in their own drama, right? Their own drama. And some of our drama is something that we need to be caught up in because it's important, significant, requires our attention. I'm not up here downplaying anybody's life, events in your life, circumstances, suffering, struggles. In a room this size, there is literally um, myriad things and agendas and worries and problems and issues going on. Hopefully, church is a place where we can gather on Sunday and leave all that at the door for a moment But why pick it back up when you leave? Yes, return to life, but from a new perspective. No matter how bad life gets compared to the glory of God and His love, it's small potatoes. As Paul put it better, this momentary light affliction. Momentary light affliction. A guy who was almost stoned to death three times thrown out of synagogues, beaten, imprisoned, and eventually beheaded. Momentary light affliction. I read about what believers are going through all over the world, and I'm moved to repentance of complaining about any hardship in my own life. And yet our hardship is hardship. So again, we're not downplaying these things. But my aim today through this passage is to give us such a big view of God that we leave here completely trusting and obeying Him as our response. Sometimes when God gets too small in our life, our problems and agendas get too big. So let's get a new view of God. I love we were singing the Fanny Crosby song. It's the second song we sang. You know, Fanny Crosby's blind. There's a line in that song that says, When we see Him. Oh, what would that mean to her? Well, the same thing it means to all of us, but especially meaningful to someone who is uh, blind. And someday we will have our eyes completely opened and we'll understand this grand drama that we're all caught up in. But for now, we get to see in part through a veil, so to speak. God has revealed enough of it to us as His children and by His Holy Spirit opened our eyes to see, wow, we are caught up in something really, really really big. And 
Forgive me, Lord, for being best actor. I am not best actor. I'm lucky to be one of those grips. Not even the key grip, you know. I'm one of billions and billions and billions of people who've moved through this planet. And yet, because I know the God most high, I am significant. That's a wonderful, wonderful message. We're talking about God's providence this morning. Providence. It's not a biblical term. It's a biblical concept, a biblical term coined by the Puritans and brought the word with them when they colonized America and named some of our cities Providence, right? Providence, Rhode Island. Aaron was born at Providence Holy Cross Hospital in San Fernando. Providence. What is this providence? Definition from Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology. It's up on the screen. The doctrine that God is continually involved with all created things. Get that? Continually involved all the time with everything created in such a way that he, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. All right, this morning you woke up and um, the electrons and protons and neutrons, gluons and nuons, and even the Higgs boson knew exactly what they were supposed to be doing because God created it that way and holds it in that way. And someday the elements will melt with fervent heat, the Bible says but not until God decides. So he's holding it all together by his providence. Even more amazing, too, as if if that's not amazing enough, he cooperates with created things in every action directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Notice it says he cooperates. He doesn't make you do what you do. Yet he knows what you're going to do, and he works that out in such a way that his plan is accomplished. He's not waiting for you to act so that he'll know what to do next. He knows how you will act. Not in such a way that it violates your responsibility and your own choice, but in such a way that's unfathomable to us to even think or say, apparently, unfathomable, that human responsibility and God's sovereignty work together hand in hand in a miraculous way. Intellectuals have to reject this God who created everything and controls everything. And so often intellectuals in the scientific community or the academic community say, no, there's this, that God's too big. And they balk at the idea of a God telling them what to do and making them do what they do. And that is not the God of the Bible. He doesn't make us do what we do. But many have rejected Christ because they hate the idea of some cosmic dictator telling them what to do and making them do. And they say, I'll show you. I'll do the opposite. And God's saying, no, I knew you were going to do that. And I knew that contingency and I planned for it and I accomplished my purposes even through your rebellion. And that makes the meaning even matter. Thirdly, 
God's providence makes it so that He directs them to fulfill His purposes. That is the really big God. Yes, a really big God is a God who created everything out of nothing, and a really big God is a God who knows what's going to happen. But a really, really, really big God doesn't pre-program us like a VCR. I'm repeating jokes from first service. (laughs) What's a VCR? What do we program today? iPads, your thermostat in your house. There's got to be a couple people out here who are like, what is a VCR? You're going to have to find somebody old and ask us about these VCR machines. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't pre-program us. And yet, he accomplishes his purposes through our choices. That's a really big God. That's a God that really, by human standards, is impossible to believe in. Which is why faith itself is a gift from God. And yet, he asks us to believe just that. So, well, I, I can't understand how he does that. And many say, when I understand how he does that, then I'll believe in him. Well, now he's your size. If you could figure that out, then you don't need God. You could be God, and that's exactly why many reject God, so they can be their own God. Yes, we understand, though, that a God that big leaves us wondering, then why all the evil? Why the suffering? Why? Why 9-11? This won't be a sermon on the problem of evil. Andy's preached on that many times. If you are struggling with the question of how an all-powerful, all-loving God could allow evil and suffering, come make an appointment with me next week. This week, VBS. Next week, the problem of evil will still be there. In the meantime, read the book of Job. Read the book of Romans, especially... Chapter 8, verse 28, that'll help get you started. Providence, it's what brought me here. I never even knew Tehachapi existed. I had my own plans, my own dreams, my own agenda. And we're called to look back over our life and say, Really, God, you were, yeah, you were, yeah, you knew, yeah. You brought her into my... Yeah. Yeah. All those people you've interacted with in life, all of their history, their baggage, their agendas, their likes, their dislikes, it all bumps into each other in such a way that God's purposes are fulfilled. It's uh, an amazingly huge God. This is the God we worship and serve. Is not that the story of Joseph... You know, when you start at the end of the story and don't know the rest of the story, you start at the end and you say, so you're telling me a Hebrew slave became the most important man in Egypt and saved the Middle East from famine. Yes. Well, how is that possible? Well, let me tell you the story. And a good chunk of the book of Genesis tells us that story. God's providence working in amazing ways. So... Let me read our passage this morning and keep providence on your mind. 
I'm going to start from verse 10, which we covered last week, but we need this week. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table and eating. Excuse me, as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. This morning we take a bite of another Mark and Sandwich. I introduced you to that concept last week that often Mark will interrupt a story to bring us to a different story, only to bring us back to the original story. And he does that in order to draw attention to a point, an important point. And this time, the meat of the sandwich is this whole story about what room are we going to eat in, and you're going to see a guy with a pitcher, and and you ask him, or you follow him, and you tell the guy of the house, the teacher needs a room, and he'll know. It's, it's kind of like, why is this in here? It's interesting. It's fascinating. Why is Mark drawing our attention to this part of the story? Furthermore, the other two synoptic Gospels include this story as well. So it apparently is a very important story. And again, when you're not reading your Bible with focused attention, passages like this, you kind of pass over. Yeah. Ironically, it's about the Passover. Don't pass over this passage. What's the bread of the sandwich? Judas is looking for an opportune time to betray Jesus. There's the top slice of the sandwich. The bottom slice, Jesus points out that one of the twelve will betray him. So we have betrayal and betrayal as the bread. How are you liking the sandwich so far? Who likes betrayal? Not I. In fact, I said at first service, kind of off the cuff, without really thinking through it all the way, but my instinct tells me that of all human issues, suffering to go through, betrayal I'd have to put in the top five of horrible things to endure. 
for the people you love and closest to you to betray you. The hurt, it's a kick in the stomach that doesn't go away. And some of you this morning still feel the pain of betrayal. And the Scriptures tell us this morning that your Savior knows how you're feeling. Three years he spent with this man. Three years, every day, going everywhere together, eating, drinking, sleeping, pouring your life in. This man got to be with God, literally, face to face for three years. And when he found out that Jesus wasn't going to build the literal kingdom, and he wasn't going to have a special place of authority and power and riches, he was disgusted with Jesus. He didn't even go to talk to him. Didn't do him the service of discussing it with him. Saying, I'm confused, I don't understand, I'm a, I'm a, little, I'm a little shaken right now. I thought we were going to assemble an army and I thought we were going... And he goes to the very people that Jesus just spent a week arguing with in the temple. And Jesus knows all of this is going to happen. Which is amazing because knowing the pain of betrayal, he chose Judas anyways. We're going to see later in a passage that he knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him. If you knew somebody was going to betray you, would you stay? I see. No. No. I don't think I could do it, and yet our Lord did it all the way to the cross. So I say to you this morning, if you're suffering from the sting of betrayal, look at our Lord as an example. There's healing. There's compassion. He understands I also want you to know that perhaps that betrayal is because you had expectations that were never reasonable and you expected someone to meet your expectations and they weren't and you call that betrayal. You didn't give that person a chance. You didn't give them an out. You didn't give them a fair shake. They have their own dreams and wishes. So maybe it's that kind of betrayal. Oh, a friend betrayed me. Hmm. Are you sure it's a betrayal? If it's an actual betrayal, we have a word for you too. God's grace and love can heal anything. It's so powerful. Give it time. Maybe you can't trust right away. Nobody's asking that. But you can forgive and let go of bitterness. One more word for you. Maybe you are in some kind of relationship right now where you felt betrayed and you're trying to stay with it. You're praying every day. Lord, how long do I have to stay with this person? How long do I have to stay with this person? Surely, it's too much. Just remember that the other person might be praying the same prayer. Or somebody you don't even know. A co-worker a fellow member of church who does the same ministry as you. Jesus was the sinless one. He didn't deserve betrayal. No one deserves betrayal, but we're sinners. 
give people a break. We do things and say things and act in selfish ways that make it hard for people to stick around. So we're not excusing betrayal. We're just asking you this morning to look at it in a different light. Because if you don't, you'll be eating a bitter sandwich for a long, long, long time. And God doesn't want that for you. So the last piece of bread in last week's sandwich is the first piece of bread in this week's sandwich. So last week's sandwich, the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees plot to kill Jesus, but they don't want to do it during the week of the Passover because everybody's in town. Jesus is popular. He rode into town. Hosanna in the highest. He cleansed the temple. He's very popular. There will be a riot Let's wait till after the Passover. They really wanted to take care of business now, but they had to wait. But waiting, you realize Jesus could get even more popular. Then Judas comes along, who they didn't know, didn't know he was feeling this way, didn't know he wanted to betray Jesus, comes to the, peop- to the, the Sanhedrin and, and says, like, I don't know exactly what he said. I'm sure he tried to sugarcoat it and make it look like he was doing a good thing because we can convince ourselves just about anything. Hey, this guy's gone too far. Yeah, I've been following him for three years. Yeah, I know I'm one of his apostles, one of his disciples, but you know he's gone too far. Rome's going to come down hard on us. I hate to do this, but you got to stop him. And it says they were glad. Why were they glad? Because they were looking for some way to abduct Jesus without making a scene. Now they have a mole. Now they have an insider who knows Jesus' whereabouts, his timetable, his plan, his agenda, his favorite hideouts. It's all very secret agent-ish, isn't it, huh? Oh, the intrigue. Let me see a show of hands. Who likes movies and books and, and this kind of genre, the the espionage, the intrigue. Yeah, a lot of you do. Our kids like it, and they're young. I used to love reading uh, Tom Clancy books. Love, love Tom Clancy books. Love Hunt for Red October, the movie. Great, great movie. Of course, whenever I say a great movie from the pulpit, people run out and see it, and there's got to be terrible language. And I don't just watch it on clear play. I always saw it on network TV, right? You know, and they filter all the stuff out. Except they don't anymore. I think they just, yeah, they just let it run now. So anyways, back to our drama here. Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him. How do I know he's going to betray him? Because it says in John chapter 6. Let's read it. I apologize for the tiny font. So... It's a lot of scripture, but this is right after Jesus feeds the 5,000. You know the story. They come back the next day to be fed again. And now he says, look, I want to feed you with my body and blood. And uh, they're disgusted with this statement. And many leave. And Jesus says, but there are some of you who do not believe. He's talking about his disciples, the ones that stayed. Not just the 12, but others 
who he considered his disciples. Remember, there's the 12, the 72. Really, anybody who was following him is called a disciple at this point. But he knows that out of that crowd, even the ones who didn't leave, there were a lot who were just sticking around for the show or what Jesus would do for them next. Are you here for the show? Are you here for the Jesus who does whatever you want him to do for you? Because that's not the Jesus of the Bible. I'm sorry to disappoint you. And yet, let me give you a much bigger picture of Jesus, a, a better Jesus, a Jesus worth staying for. And he was saying um, that uh, he knew from the beginning who they were who would not believe and who it was that would betray him. So he knew those who would fall away and he even knew which one would betray him. I'm glad we don't know which ones aren't going to stay around. I I couldn't love the right way if I knew. And yet, to some degree, when you say your vows, you know you're marrying a sinner. And your spouse knows she's marrying a sinner. So to some degree, you're saying, I'm sticking around, even though though I know it ain't going to be a honeymoon all the time. Yet, we come from the place of humility. We should knowing, yeah, I'm going to make life hard on you probably. You're going to make life a little hard on me, but hopefully the blessing outweighs the hardship. We're going to grow together. You have your children, and you know up front that it's going to be a pretty one-sided relationship. They give kisses and hugs, but as far as having to endure and be patient and extend grace, you're going to have to do a lot of that until they understand these concepts. Hopefully we get to our adult life and look back at our parents and say, Boy, yeah, I have some crow to eat, some humble pie to eat. Maybe I should pick up the phone. And yet Jesus, that's a one-way relationship when it comes to extending grace. No one had to extend grace to Jesus. Think think on that. The one person in history who doesn't need forgiveness or grace. Though I think that the people around him probably thought he needed some grace. I know that because there's times in my own life when I say, I think, Jesus, you gave me a bum rap on this one. Oh, sovereign controller of the universe. Like Job, you know, I know you're God most high, but I have some questions. And hopefully you end up like Job does at the end of the story. Woe is me. I'm a, I spoke of things too wonderful for me to understand. I repent in dust and ashes. You are, you are sovereign God in your ways, as we recited from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, are higher than mine, right? Lean not on your own understanding. Jesus says, um, 
For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Here's your chance. Count the cost. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love Peter. He gets it right. And then he'll get it wrong an hour later. Can't, can't you relate? That's good. I'm glad there's these characters in the Bible that we can relate to. Because I can't relate to Jesus. He's too big. He's too perfect. He's too wonderful. My redeemed nature wants to be like Him. My flesh despises Him because I'm never going to be like that. Be honest. Have you ever been upset with somebody who does something better than you? I was quite happy till you showed up. <laughs> There's a line in a movie I like, also one with a lot of language, so don't run out and rent it. But it's called Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, and the professor at the end says to Matt Damon, I wish you never existed, or I wish I never knew someone like you existed. Because this guy was the top dog in the world of mathematics, and to him, that was what made him special. And Matt Damon would come along and solve equations and proofs on the back of a napkin that this professor had been working on for decades. And he said, this stuff's easy. You're an idiot. I'm sure he wasn't even out of character when he said that. That sounds a lot like Matt Damon, right? You're an idiot. And the professor falls to his knees and tries to put the, the pieces back together. And he says, I hate you, and I hate that someone like you exists. Judas, I hate that someone like you exists. Instead of saying... Thank God someone like you exists. Let me adore you. Let me worship you. Let me follow you. Here's someone I can put my trust in. Here's someone with the answers. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Jesus knew. John chapter 6 is long before our passage today. Really, before the foundations of the world, the Trinity wrote the script. And Jesus has been directing it and acting it. He knew from the beginning Judas would betray him. Remember I said last week that the other 11 were from Galilee. Judas was a southerner. <laughs> He's a confederate. <laughs> and yet, Jesus holds his composure together and prevents Judas from betraying him too soon. Right Now they'd like to arrest Jesus before the Passover, get everything done in stealth before he gets any more popular. But Jesus 
wants to die right during the slaughtering of the lambs during the Passover feast. They start slaughtering the lambs between 3 and 5 o'clock. The Jews call it twilight. Between two lights, twilight. You know, that beautiful time when the sky is almost whimsical or it's got that soft hue to it. You know, you like to go out on your back patio and, and just soak it in. That's when they would slaughter the lambs. They have to get it done before sun down, though. Remember we said last week that, yeah, God's so in control of these events that at this time, the Passover was celebrated on Thursday and Friday. The northern Jews, the Galileans, celebrate it on Thursday. The southern Jews celebrate it Friday. Jesus wants to have Passover with his disciples, teach them about the new covenant, the new meaning of the body and blood, wherefore... It was the Passover lamb back during the Exodus. Now Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's our sacrifice. He provides the atonement. He's now our high priest. It's a new covenant in His blood. He needs to do that during the Passover, but He also wants to die during the Passover. Hey, there's two Passovers now. Part of the reason is it's a pragmatic issue. How do you get that many lambs slaughtered between three and five? Well, you need two days. We always kind of picture the Passover probably as this, you know, one altar, lots of pomp and circumstance and priests and and their priestly garbs, yes, but we picture kind of one lamb at a time. Now, it was like a slaughterhouse on a scale unimaginable. And the rule was that two men bring the lamb and they slaughter your lamb. It was probably very, okay, get in line, give us the lamb. Okay, this one's got no blemishes or ah, blemishes. You need to go trade it in for another one at extremely marked up prices. I wonder if they took a number or something and you go wait over there and you get your lamb back. I, you know, I don't know, but it's a lot of lambs. A lot of lambs. And it wasn't clean or pretty. I was talking to Carl Brooks earlier uh, this week about uh, they had raised a cow and, and had it butchered and they watched the process and he said there was blood everywhere and they tried to bury it in the dirt, Carl, and you know, no, you can't. It just gets everywhere. It was supposed to look horrendous. It was supposed to remind us how hideous our sin is and wasn't the cross horrendous. Just horrendous way to die and for it to be such a spectacle. The Romans made it horrendous to tell people, yeah, don't, don't do that again. Don't, don't cross us. We don't play nice. And yet for us now, it's a reminder of the hideousness of our sin. How did Jesus prevent Judas from betraying him too soon? Judas is now looking for the first available opportunity to betray Jesus, which would certainly be at the Passover meal. You'd be eating in a private room. It'd be late. The Passover meal takes about four hours, so it's going to be dark. Everybody else is eating the Passover, so people aren't walking around the streets. This would be a perfect time for Judas to betray Jesus. And what does Jesus do? 
he sends Peter and John and tells them, sorry friends, Peter and John, can't trust you, so I'm not even going to tell you the address. They're part of a plot that they don't even know they're part of. They don't know Judas is looking to betray Jesus. So he tells them, look, go look for a guy walking through town with a pitcher on his head we see in one of the other Gospels. Men don't walk around Jerusalem with pitchers of water on their head. Women do. So you'll, you'll, you'll know the guy. Follow him. It would almost be cool if there was like a thing they're supposed to say to him, like the eagle has landed. Indeed, he has. You know. Whatever they do in the movies. So you're supposed to follow this guy, see the house he walks into, knock on the door, say to the guy who answers, the teacher needs a room. And the guy knows what they're talking about. So apparently Jesus prearranged all of this to happen. Can you imagine the, the talk Later, amongst the apostles, a few years after the ascension, you know, thinking back on that night, we were clueless. He, he completely knew everything that was going on. We were pawns. We just had to show up. Judas didn't know what room. By the time... Peter and John come back from the temple and go back to the room. It's all prepared. And then Jesus brings the other ten with them. And here's where we're eating. No time for Judas to go leave and tell the authorities. Now Judas has to eat the Passover with the guy he's going to betray. And in the middle of dinner, he girds himself with a towel and washes his feet. Oh, this is... It's almost too much. And liberal scholars have said it's too much. It's just too good. It's too perfect. It's, it's got to be made up. Well, you have a choice. Is this the way it happened or is it made up? Is God really this big and this in control? Is Jesus that amazing that he was completely in control of all these events? Is this the God that you want to follow and worship? Can you trust this God with your life? Are you okay with His sovereignty and His decisions and His plan for you? You'd think maybe Judas, that would have melted his heart. Instead, it seemed to just harden it. Oh, look at him and the towel around his waist. Spare me. Spare me. Salt. It's all for show. Or, oh, that is so weak. That is not leadership. That is not authority. No leader I could respect would be washing people's feet like a slave. And then he says, go and do likewise. <laughs> oh, no. 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 I am not washing feet. You know why he washed the feet? Do you know what the disciples did right before the feet washing? They're reclining around the table, they're eating, they're having conversation, and they get into another argument over who's going to be the greatest. It's like, haven't we been over that? And so he says, let me show you what the greatest looks like.
And then right there at the table, again, it's like a four-hour supper, and we don't know at what point he says this. We don't have the whole chronology of the Last Supper completely hammered out. But certainly they're reclining around the table, and I'm sure they're all talking and having private conversation. You know how at large dinner parties we kind of break up into like twos and threes and fours and kind of talking about their thing? That's the way I imagine it. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. And then go back to eating. You know, just drop that bomb right in the middle of the room. You, you, you can't blame him. For him, it's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. He knows he's going to the cross in a few hours and the horrors of the cross. And everyone's eating and talking, and they don't care. They don't know the impending horror their Lord's going to go through. They're arguing over who's the greatest. It's a dinner party, you know. Oh, but it's the Passover. It's supposed to be reverent. And yeah, but they've been having the Passover every year of their life. It was to them just, you know, one more Passover. And Jesus drops this bomb. By the way, one of you is going to betray me. And they start saying, it's not I, is it? Isn't that interesting? It's not I. It's not going to be me. I guess at this point, they've so learned to be suspicious of their own motives because they've been wrong so many times that they're like, oh, no. I haven't been plotting, but it's not me, is it? That's what it says. They all say, one by one, they go to woman. Is it me? And Jesus says, it's the one who, who dips in the bowl with, with me. And he all but dares Judas, go do it. We see in one of the other accounts, go do, do what you have to do. Now's the time. Now's the time, go do it. What a shock to Judas. I think he's just so blinded in his selfishness and rage and hatred that it never occurred to him to say, wait a minute, how do you know? Like, now's the time. I've got it down to the minute. I want you to go now. Go tell him now. Judas had been plotting against Jesus and the whole time Jesus was plotting It's like that great plot twist at the end of movies, like the usual suspects, and you realize, oh, I've had it wrong all along. Judas thought he was in control of the situation, and then he realizes, no, Jesus, again, has been in control. Jesus. And we should say, oh, Jesus, amazing. What a Savior. What a God. I had to borrow this line and paraphrase it a bit from John MacArthur. Here in this scene, we see the sovereignty of God in His deity, Jesus and His deity, next to the humility and obedience in His humanity. There's no one like this. Never has been, never will be. There's only one. Jesus, Creator of heaven and earth, King of kings and Lord of lords, was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in a borrowed womb, was born in a borrowed manger, arrived in Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, stayed in borrowed homes, celebrated the Passover in a borrowed room, 
died on a borrowed Roman cross and was buried in a borrowed tomb, yet he owned it all. Isn't that great? Sovereign God, humble in his humanity. Everybody thought he was one thing, and it turned out he was something completely different, so big that nobody could conceive of a God like this. This week during VBS, we'll present this God that is too big for the kids. Good. I want them leaving this week saying, this God's too big to understand. Good. Because what a shame when the church has been presenting a God small enough to wrap your mind around, and we wonder why kids are leaving the faith. I don't think they ever lost the faith. Maybe we didn't give them the faith. So let's give them a God too big to comprehend and let them make the choice. Either you reject this God or you fall on your knees in worship. But you don't make them into something tame and understandable and more like me and you. What will it be? What will it be for you? Because this is God. This is our provident God. He is this amazing. Will you fall on your knees and worship in obedience and trust? Or are you going to go home and try to figure it all out? And when you get the answers, then maybe, then maybe I'll believe in Him. I'll save you the trouble. You're not going to figure Him out. You don't want to figure Him all out. You don't want a God that small. Kathy's going to come up and we're going to sing a cappella, Trust and Obey. Because really, that's the only rightful response to what we've heard today. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of our trust and our obedience. Holy Spirit, help us to trust and obey. We love you, we praise you, we fall on our faces in adoration and awe. Dismiss us now in Jesus' name.